All right, on this very fine evening, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Father, I do thank you so much, Lord, for this crowd of people gathered together to hear your word. And Father, I'm very conscious tonight of the fact that you want to speak to our hearts, and you really want to have dealings with us and challenge us. And Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus for the ability to put the things that you've shared with my heart over to my brothers and, and sisters in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, therefore, I ask you, Lord, for the anointing of your Spirit to be heavily upon me tonight. And not just upon me, but upon every person who is listening, whether they're in this room or whether they're listening to this on tape. Father, I ask even now for the blood of Jesus to be on this auditorium and on the auditorium where they're listening. And that, Father, your Spirit will fill every part of this auditorium so that indeed we might know that it's the Spirit of God that is speaking to the churches, even this night. And Father, through the talk that I give tonight, will you just change our lives, Father? And may we be able to say that, Father, in two years' time, that it was because of the word shared tonight that things fundamentally began to change in our lives. I ask, Father, tonight that this may be a structural talk of great significance, and I ask it because I know your leading is on from one degree of glory to another, from one degree of truth to another. Oh, Father, just come and take my stammering mouth, and may it indeed be a channel of vast blessing for you. In the name of Jesus, I would ask this. Amen. Amen. We're talking about essentials for growth, and we're now halfway through this final series. I've deliberately, by the way, chosen the subject Essentials for Growth because I thought after all of the Bible knowledge that we've taken in during the last six courses, it's essential that we remind ourselves that it's no good having the knowledge just in our head. Our very lives have got to show forth the knowledge that we've received. And so, by speaking about essentials for growth, I'm assuming that we are going to grow, that we are going to change, that we want to change, and that we know that God wants us to change. And what I've done in this course is taken a series of topics which I think form the essential things we've got to know if we are to achieve the growth rate that God has in mind for us. And you remember in the early part of the series I spoke about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We spoke about moving in the gifts of the Spirit. And from about talk number five or six onwards, we've been following a very definite pattern. In fact, it was just two talks ago that I told you the pattern that we were going to follow. Do you remember I reminded you of the sentence that my father often used to say, that every person needs three things if they're going to be healthy. Do you remember this? He said, first of all, you've got to be a good breather. Secondly, you've got to take in nourishing food. And thirdly, you've got to have enough exercise. And in the last two talks, I talked about spiritual breathing, which was, of course, prayer, Today I'm speaking about nourishment, we're going to talk about the Word of God, and for the remainder of this course we're going to talk about spiritual exercise, and we'll be talking about walking in the Spirit, uh, forgiveness, functioning in love and repentance, uh, we'll be talking about applying the blood, fasting, and the highway of holiness. Now that's the way we're going, right, from tonight on. So we've dealt with breathing, now we come to nourishment. And do you remember, and it came as a bit of a surprise 
for me last time, that we found some of the basic teaching we had to learn about prayer coming in what is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, or in fact the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say. And because we learnt something from that, I want to go back to the Lord's Prayer at the very beginning of today and show you how we're going to follow it through. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, and read verse 9 to verse 13. Remember, this was the blueprint or the pattern that Jesus said all prayer should follow. It doesn't mean that you need to pray this specific prayer, but that whatever prayer you pray, it must contain elements that are given in this particular blueprint. Verse 9 says this, After this manner, therefore, pray you, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And last time it was verse 10 that we turned our attention to, and I hope after those talks on prayer you now have a working knowledge of verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then notice it goes straight on to the subject of nourishment. And that's very convenient for me because that's exactly where I'm going to go on to. The prayer given here is give us this day our daily bread. And the way that the people in the world take that prayer is this. They pray it, if they pray it at all, and they mean by it, Lord, make sure I've got enough to eat today, please. Or whatever I need today in a physical way, will you please give it to me? Beloved, for those of us who are Christians, whereas it's true that we must pray that prayer and ask God to provide for our needs, there is, of course, a spiritual aspect to this prayer. You see, we as human beings aren't just a body. If we were, then this prayer would simply be, Lord, give us this day our mother's pride or our wholemeal hovis or whatever it is. And we would stop on the physical level. But we're not just physical people. We have a physical body, so we need bread physically. But we also have a human spirit. And the human spirit that we have within us also needs to be fed. And in this prayer, when we ask, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, we are not actually just asking for physical sustenance, although we need that. We are also asking God to provide us that which we need for spiritual sustenance as well. Now remember this, that Jesus had already defined that the physical wasn't the only thing that occupied him. In fact, just two chapters earlier, in Matthew 4, do you remember that he'd clearly laid it out, that whereas physical bread was necessary, it wasn't the only thing that was necessary. And here in Matthew 4, we have the temptation of Jesus. All right, And it says clearly that he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights and he was hungry. He was actually fulfilling his father's will. It was father who had asked him to remain hungry for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was obeying his father in heaven, doing his will, which he said was meat indeed for him. And so he found that his body was hungry. And it's in this slightly weakened state that Satan comes along to test him. And Satan says, look, you're starving aren't you? You're you're really hungry. Look, Jesus, with all the power you've got, why don't you actually go down and pick up one of those stones and turn it into a roll, a ham roll, 
excuse me, not a ham roll, but uh, a roll of some description. And why don't, you, uh, why don't you actually get hold of that stone, turn it into bread, and then you will meet your body's needs. Jesus immediately, of course, knowing that this is a temptation, reminds Satan that he is not just a physical being. It's not a question of just being led by that which pulls you physically. He is also a spiritual being and has to do that which is right spiritually. And so, using a quotation, this is what he answered, verse 4, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, meaning physical bread, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The little word alone in here shows that both are necessary. You've got to have physical food, but you've also got to have spiritual food, and beloved, you need them both. If we are to be successful as Christians, and if we are to grow in the way that God wants us to grow, we must realize that we need both of these things too. It's wonderful to have physical food, and most of us are diligent about it. But do you know you've got to be as diligent about getting spiritual food as well? Your spirit needs feeding as much as your body needs feeding. And the great tragedy in our day is that even among Christians... We have a greater um, desire to feed physically than very often we do to feed spiritually. How do we feed spiritually? Well, Jesus gives us the answer here. It's not by physical bread, but it's by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there are two dimensions in our life. There is the vertical relationship with God, the spiritual relationship, where we are receiving food from heaven for our spirits. There's also the horizontal relationship where we are receiving food for our bodies, okay? And we as Christians must remember we've got both of those, the vertical and the horizontal in our lives. How interesting, by the way, that in every one of these temptations, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And I think we can learn an awful lot about what Jesus is really saying if we go to the passage that he's quoting from. For this phrase used here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. So let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, and let's see what's going on in this particular passage. I hope you all know what the book of Deuteronomy is. Do you remember that this teaching is given at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. Do you remember that? 40 years previously, the Israelites had been re released from Egypt. They'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and here they are on the east side of Jordan, and they're about to go into the Promised Land. Now, Moses is not going to go in with them. And the book of Deuteronomy represents the last teaching he gave them before he died and before they go into the land. So this is a very crucial book, all right? And get the positioning right. Now look what he says, verse 1 of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. He emphasizes the importance of the Word of God. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. The land's before you, he says. The important thing you've got to remember is that the word of God is the vital thing and you've got to do it and you've got to remember it and you've got to keep it. Verse 2, 
And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Remember the past 40 years and don't forget it. This is one of many passages, by the way, in the Bible that tells you that history is important. Don't forget history or you're in trouble. Don't forget the last 40 years, but remember the lessons of the last 40 years. And what lesson? Verse 3. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And apparently the lessons of the forty years were these, that man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, how was that the lesson that they had to learn? Well, let's have a look just for a moment at the history that is contained in this particular verse. Do you remember that Moses, when he realized he was in the Egyptian palace at the time. When he realized he was an Israelite, he suddenly realized, well, I want my people to be set free as God does. And do you remember, he decided that he would set them free. And there was a fight going on, and he went up and he killed the Egyptian. Do you remember that? And because of that, he had to run for his life. He thought that he, in the natural, could actually release the children of Israel from Egypt. God knew that it couldn't be done in the natural. It had to be supernatural. And so he thought, well, I've got to teach this Moses one or two lessons. And the best place to do it is in Midian. And off he goes to Midian. Do you remember there for 40 years, Moses does nothing but keep sheep. And in those 40 years, God is teaching him valuable lessons about the fact that he is the one who does all things. That it's not by might nor by power, but it's by his spirit. That's the lesson that Moses had to learn. And do you remember at the end of 40 years, Moses receives a calling to go back to Egypt. The calling comes wonderfully. He sees a bush that is burning, but it isn't consumed. Do you remember that? And here's this bush and flames coming out of it. But as Moses looks at it, he suddenly realizes, hey, those flames are not feeding on the tree itself. And God is saying this message to Moses, Moses, when you go back to Egypt, it mustn't be your energy that keeps the fire burning. It's got to be my spirit through you that keeps the fire burning. And Moses, after 40 years, learns the lesson. So he goes back to Egypt. And there are the children of Israel in the most dreadful bondage and slavery. Humanly, there is no way that they can be released. It is impossible. And Moses walks into Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, God has sent me, the great I am has sent me, and his message is this, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I won't. Now, if Moses uh, now starts using his physical energy, the children of Israel aren't going to get anywhere. But Moses doesn't. Moses realizes that God has put his word into Moses' mouth, and he starts to speak plagues onto the land. Do you remember that? And he spoke the first plague onto the land, and the plague came. And still Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And the second plague, and the third plague, only after ten plagues had hit, does Pharaoh finally bring Moses in and says, take the people out. I want nothing more to do with them. Take them out. And Moses begins to lead those people out of Egypt. Do you remember that? Was it done by the strength of a man's arm? No, it wasn't. It was done by the very activity of God himself. And the people start heading. Now they're thrilled. We're, we're free. Great. And they go out rich. 
But do you remember, suddenly they reach this obstacle called the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's coming up behind, he's changed his mind. And they look at the Red Sea and they look at Pharaoh and they think, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this place? Again, humanly, it's impossible. But Moses, knowing the word of God, lifts up his rod over the sea. And as he does so, an east wind blows and the sea opens and they out they go into freedom. All right. So far, so good. Notice it's been the word of God and the power of God that got them out. Now, when they were on the other side, God's plan for them, his perfect plan, was that they might go straight up onto the borders of the land and then go in and inherit the land. That was God's perfect plan for them. But what was the problem? The problem was, once they were out of Egypt, they immediately reverted to natural thinking and reverted to the natural. And do you remember, the first obstacle that hit them was there was bitter water. No fresh water for them to drink. Now, what should have their reaction been? Their reaction should have been, well, look, God's brought us out. He won't leave us in this wilderness to die. That would be nonsense. If the God we serve opened the Red Sea, if he blighted Egypt with the plagues, he can easily deal with this problem. That was the spiritual response. How did they respond? Not that way at all. They responded immediately by saying, well, Moses, this is a fine uh, difficulty you've got us into. What a mess around here. So you lead us out of Egypt. We'd rather be back in Egypt. Oh, why have we left? And they immediately start moving on the level of the natural. Do you see that? Forget that God has called them, that the God of the impossible is with them. They move in the natural. And as they proceed up country, they're moaning, they're murmuring, they're complaining. I mean, poor old Moses. If I'd been Moses, I'd have dumped the lot of them. I really would. But Moses sticks with them. But the trouble is, you see, they've lost this vertical dimension. They are now moving entirely in the natural. They're on the level of physical bread only. And as a result, they're going to be in trouble when they try and enter the promised land. And they get to the border, and do you remember the idea that they have? Look, we'll send 12 spies into the land. They can spy out the land for 40 days, and then come and give us a report, and if it's good, we'll go and take it. What a good idea. And so they take one spy from the 12 tribes, do you remember this story? And in they go for uh, 40 days, they spy out the land. The trouble is, God isn't in their thinking anymore. This is such a tragedy. It's only a few weeks since they came across the Red Sea. And when they come back, ten of them report like this. Oh, it's, it's a marvellous land. The trouble is, it's already occupied, right? It's got walled cities, it's got giants. We were like little grasshoppers. We cannot take the land. They're living in the natural realm only. Do you see the point that I'm making? It was only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who had the divine perspective. And they get, they still the crowd. They're weeping their hearts out. They say, now listen, calm down, folks. And they say, look... Of course we can't take the land, but God who called us to take the land can easily allow us to. Come on, he'll do it. They were feeding on the living bread, right? The word that had come from God himself. They knew that God was able to do it, even though they couldn't in the natural. The tragedy was the people wouldn't listen. And God realizes if they're going to come into the promised land, he's got to get rid of this unbelief that is within them. And how does he do it? He says to them this. Listen, he says, for 40 days you were in that land, and you were in that land in unbelief. Because of those 40 days, you will now wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And the 
idea of the wilderness was this. It was to remove their unbelief from them. And how was God going to do it? Well, you imagine the prospect that they had. The children of Israel must have looked at one another, two million of them. They said, we're going to wander around in the wilderness. Well, how are we going to be fed? I mean, there aren't any Sainsbury's. There weren't any Tesco's. The ground was so infertile, we couldn't grow bread. Even if we could have some seed to plant, there wasn't any rain to fall on it. How are we going to get bread? We're in a real mess. And what about this when my dress wears out? Where am I going to go? You know, Bobby's won't be in the middle of the... Uh, that's a shop in Bogner, by the way. Won't, won't be in the middle of the desert. What am I going to do? And they begin moving into the wilderness. And what do they find? With all the natural removed... God still looks after them. Isn't that wonderful? How? Well, the food appears on the ground. The manna. You remember, it says you didn't know it, nor your fathers. That's manna means what is it. Doesn't it, as you probably know. And they came and said, oh, what is it? And they dug their finger in and it tasted really good. Do you know, for 40 years, God sovereignly provided them without one Sainsbury's in sight. Isn't that wonderful? There wasn't one shekel the past hands. In all that time, God sovereignly provided for them. How did he deal with the shoe and dress situation? Why, quite simple. Verse 4, thy raiment reminds Moses, reminds uh, the people, uh, thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. In other words, for 40 years you've lived not by your choosing, but because God determined that you would by every word that proceeded from God's mouth. God said, let there be food, and there was food. God said, let not their garments wear out. They didn't wear out. God said, let not their shoes wear out, and their shoes didn't wear out. You live by the word of God. Now, Moses, standing in front of the promised land, wants to remind them of that. And the point he's going to make is this. When you get into the promised land, you're going to have physical provision. When the physical provision is there, don't forget the Lord your God. Realize that bread alone won't cut it. It's every word that proceeds from the mouth of God that cuts it. We've got to keep this in our thinking. By the way, let's just read it through. I mean, he says here, look, verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains, of depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. All the physical is going to be provided. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which, which I have commanded thee this day. And you see the point that he's making. Look, even when there is natural provision, please will you make sure that you're still receiving that provision which comes from the very mouth of God. And the great tragedy about the Israelites is this. That in fact, when they got into the land, they soon became drunk with the provision. And they forgot God. And the moment they forgot God, do you know, they started having harvest failures. Famine began in the land. And God was saying to them, here, these are the last words of Moses before they get in. Even when you've got plenty of bread, please don't neglect the spiritual side. Because if you do, you'll find that physical bread is not enough. 
And the lesson of the wilderness is this. Man shall not live just by physical bread, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Beloved, we as Christians must come into a revelation of this. You see, it's, it's not when we're going through difficulties that our, the spiritual side of our life lacks. It's when we're in abundance that it lacks, when we've got things easy, you know, and we live in a very affluent society. It's at that time we've got to make sure we are as avid to receive the spiritual bread as we are to receive the natural bread. What is this bread that we receive? Why? It's as clear as a bell. It's the very Word of God itself. You'll find in the New Testament that the Word of God is called bread. It's called milk. It's called meat. It's even called water in one particular place. And when we take in the Word of God, we are feeding our spirits. If you neglect your spirit, you will find that the natural will wither away. To be healthy, you've got to have both physical provision and this spiritual provision. And this means that on a daily basis, we've got to take in and digest the Word of God. We cannot live without it. We cannot do without this daily intake of the Word of God. The tragedy in the church is this, that once people are converted, filled with the Spirit, once they know a bit of the jargon and they know enough of the Scripture to get by, many tend to neglect it altogether. I don't know the figures. I would like to do, uh, you know, a survey one day in the church generally and find out how many people really get into the Word every single day. I know that there are some Christians who just live a nice spiritual front, you know, smiling face. They can repeat a few jargon phrases, a few cliches, you know, and get through. But many of them are totally ignoring the Word of God. There are Christians around who don't even open their Bibles, if the truth be known, once they get inside their own house. It's a disgrace. There are other Christians who are superficial about it. You know, they're born again, know how to do it, you know, and we have nice fellowship together, and we chat, 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 chat. And they know they've got to read the Word of God, so they do it one chapter a day. And they read this chapter, it does nothing to them, and uh, when they finish the chapter, oh, that's super, that, what a jolly nice chapter that was, excellent. And off they go, and they close up their Bibles, and the rest of the day is their own, you see? And that's, it. that's not actually feeding on the Word of God, is it? And they're terribly superficial about it. These are people who, if you ask them, would say, oh, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. Yes, I'm a fundamentalist. Yes, oh, I believe it's true from beginning to end. The trouble is, they are not actually taking it in as they ought to take it in. And it's this superficiality, this shallowness that has got to be rooted out of our lives. For if we are shallow with the Word of God, I'll tell you, we'll be in a worse state than the Israelites were. We'll know that the promised land is there, we'll never be able to get into it. It's by the Word of God you get into the promised land, not by physical brute force. I just warn you about that. It's not, you know, when you produce a very nice house and have everything, you know, sorted out just beautifully, that then the promised land comes upon you. It's as you are dynamic with God and receive sustenance from, from the Lord. I wonder how fat you are spiritually. I wonder how much you've taken in, how greedy you are with the Word of God. If you are superficial or shallow, you've got to root it out and root it out tonight. Now, Jesus knew that this was true of many so-called followers and disciples. And it's interesting that it is to root out the shallowness in his disciples that the whole of John 6 is devoted. And I would like us to go to this very difficult chapter, John chapter 6, and I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse -verse study of this. When I get on to the book of John verse-by-verse, -verse, we'll do it right the way through. But 
I want to take some of the most difficult verses of this particular passage and show you what Jesus is doing. Some people, and I have to tell you this, find John 6 totally unmanageable. By the way, if you don't know what's in John 6, and you have been converted for more than five years, you are not using the Word of God right. John 6 is such an important and well-known passage, you should at least know what's in it. And if you don't, you are the person I'm speaking to tonight. If you're under five years old, well, I forgive you. Praise the Lord, okay? And I trust that as you go on in God, you will, you will know it. Some people find this totally unmanageable. It's not as difficult as they make out. The key with John 6 is you've got to take the whole chapter. Jesus begins this chapter at the height of his popularity. Why everyone wants him and everyone wants to hear him. This is the most popular chap in the whole of the land. Okay? And he increases his popularity because from verse 1 to verse 14, we have the famous episode of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, isn't this wonderful? The crowds all come to hear his talking. 5,000 have gathered for his Bible teaching. And they're hungry. They're hungry. Oh, so who's going to feed them? Well, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll feed them. And the little boy comes out, and he's got five barley loaves, do you remember this? And he's got two fish, and Jesus takes hold of this, and he begins dividing, and as he divides, he divides and divides and divides and divides and divides, and there's easily enough food for the thousands and thousands that are gathered. By the way, what's he saying? He's actually saying that physical provision doesn't come in the natural, it comes in the supernatural. I want to make this point right now. If everyone in this world would repent of their, their sins and turn to God, there will be no famine and no starvation anywhere on the face of this earth. This earth is easily rich enough to supply for everyone. Just throw that out right now. The moment you bring Jesus into the picture, even five loaves and two fish become enough for thousands. So here he is, he's just fed 5,000 men. I mean, this man's popularity is going up and up and up and up and up as the hours go past. And the people sit there and they say, wow, we thought his teaching was good. But this as well, tremendously popular. So popular, in fact, that in verse 15, they want to make him king. Look, when Jesus, therefore, perceived that they will come and take him by force to make him a king, there it is, the mob coming. This is democracy. Democracy now decides we will vote for this man. Isn't that good news? And most religious teachers would have jumped at the chance, said, oh, good, great, we'll start the revolution now. What did Jesus do? Notice, he departed again into a mountain himself alone, not interested in the mob, not interested in what they should do to him. All right, that's the end of that episode. But then you get another episode. The disciples now set out on a boat without Jesus. And the storm blows up there in the middle of the sea, and Jesus walks to them over the water. Have you noticed? See how the passage unfolds in this. And Jesus walks right across into the middle of the lake, and he climbs in the boat. Right, they're all worried. He climbs in the boat. What is he doing, by the way? I'll tell you what he's saying by that incident. He's saying, look, whether the crowd think I'm a king or not, I am a king, and I am the king. And notice his kingship doesn't depend on democracy. He is king because God's made him king, right? And the fact that he's walking on the water has nothing to do with mob rule at all. He really is the king of the universe. Hallelujah. The disciples need to know it. Right. Of course, the following day, the crowd wake up and say, well, where's Jesus? And the news go, he's on the other side. Well, how did he get there? There weren't any other boats. He must have walked across. Now, this is it. I mean, it's going sky high. 
You know, a Maori pole would now be up to 100% or thereabouts. And they rush round the other side of, of the, the lake and they say to Jesus, this is wonderful. And now they say, ah, now hold on. We know that the prophet who's coming, he'll produce manna from the sky. You're going to produce some manna now? Show us a sign. Isn't it an agony, by the way? Manna wasn't something to be proud of. Manna had come because of rank unbelief. And you see, these people who still had unbelief in their hearts are asking for manna. What Jesus must have thought of this is terrible. And a dialogue starts about manna. Now, it's not that dialogue we want to look at. It's the teaching right at the end from verse 51. Here he is. The crowd are all for him. All his disciples are for him. And what does he say in verse 51? I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Ah, ah, popularity is beginning to wane. Verse 53, it gets worse. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Not the communion, by the way. The communion hadn't been introduced at this point. And the Jews suddenly are absolutely stunned listening to this. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your father did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. Now you can imagine how this went down among the crowd. The Jews hated the thought of drinking blood. The thought of drinking animal blood was an abomination to them, and the thought of cannibalism was even worse. Cannibalism had only been known in the times of greatest disaster in the land. And here is Jesus, he said, by the way, you've got to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood. You might say, Jesus, really, you've blown it now. I mean, here you are, you're the most popular chap on the face of the land, you give out teaching like this that no self-respecting Jew will ever listen to. The Jews were revolted. What is Jesus doing? He is challenging the shallowness of their dedication to him. That's what he's doing. He's given this difficult teaching absolutely deliberately to sort out the sheep from the goats. That's what this is all about, you see? You see, these Jews admired him. They admired him, they admired his works, they admired his ways, they admired, well, just everything about him. But Jesus knows that their commitment is not a real commitment. And the point that he makes is this, listen, your commitment cannot be as shallow as that. There has to be a taking of my life into yourself to be totally committed. The analogy that he's giving is food here. You see, he says, my flesh is food indeed. Now, let's take the analogy and let's see what Jesus is saying. Say you're a hungry man and you come in and there's a big banqueting hall and the table is laid up with food, right? And there's the food all over. Now, is it going to do you any good at all if you just stand there and admire it? And you say, what wonderful food. Look at this food. I mean, look at the presentation. Look at it. I mean, this homemaker's group has really achieved something. 
You look at the food laid out on these tables. Look, paper doilies under all the cakes, right? A paper napkin, a nice little fork to eat the cakes with. Wonderful. And I can see it's very healthy food. Got vitamins X, Y, and Z. Wonderful. What tremendous food. Oh, the person who made this, I'll tell you, is a genius. Really wonderful. I really admire them. Now, if you carry on like that, let me tell you something. It's going to do you no good at all. You'll drop dead of starvation if you carry on like that. You can admire it. You can think it's wonderful. You can take in all the details of it. But unless you are actually prepared to commit that food to yourself and take it inside, you'll die of hunger. You see, there has to be more than just a sheer admiration of this food. You've got to take hold of it, and you've got to take it on board. You've got to put it in your mouth, and it's got to pass down to become part of you as a physical being. And what these Jews were doing is this. They were admiring Jesus. They were impressed by Jesus. But they weren't going to be committed to him, and they wouldn't allow him to be committed to them. And it's that shallowness that Jesus is trying to root out. By the way, I want to say it now. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is not enough for salvation. Believing in the resurrection is not enough for salvation. The devil believes in Jesus Christ. He's met him, he's spoken to him. The devil believes in the resurrection. The Bible says you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see the difference. One is to view it intellectually from afar. The other is to take your life and throw it upon Christ. To put your weight on it. Say, Lord, I cannot, but I trust you with everything. Now that's the commitment Jesus is speaking about here. You see? All right. This also applies to the Word of God. And we as Christians, for too long, have admired the Word. You know, I mean, I know Christians who've got every sort of version on their bookshelves. And they have them on their bookshelf, and there is the Word of God. When I was at university, as I must have told you many times, we were told always to carry a Bible under our arms. And we used to carry the, you know, that's why we walked slightly funnily from our university. <laughs> and we used to uh, carry this Bible under our arms, you see. But the tragedy was with most Christians that the Bible was under their arms, but it certainly wasn't between their ears. It wasn't up. It didn't enter into their thinking. They continued to think the way they'd always thought. And I know Christians who are just like that. They admire the Word of God. Oh, they think it's wonderful. It contains all sorts of wonderful truths. I believe it all. Most convincing. The trouble is they're not committed to this Word, and they don't actually see the Word as so vital they must take it in every day. And it's because of this that they lead such shallow lives. And the tragedy is their lives represent the flesh instead of the spirit. That's very bad. You know, you can always tell a person who's really taken in the Word of God, their life shows it. Same with physical food, by the way. You can always tell those who eat 10 pounds of chocolates a day. You start committing yourself to 10 pounds of chocolates every day, within a week someone will realize what you're doing. You'll blow up like a barrage balloon. You really will. And when you come in almost floating, people say, what have you been up to? Because you're eating 10 pounds of chocolates a day. Do you really think you can really take in the Word of God and remain the same? Of course you can't. It's one of my fears connected with those who are regularly on the tapes, you know. Isn't it easy in this day to get pre-digested ideas, you see? Switch a tape on. And there are some people, I'm called by one person, Roger the Lodger, because they have me on all day long in their kitchen. Well, bless her, that's a mature Christian. There's no, nothing wrong with that. The danger I 
I'm on the lookout for those who have listened to my tapes, and instead of doing what I want them to do, that is to use the tapes to give them a hunger for their own Bible study, they're on the tapes and not on the Bible. It's the danger of all annotated versions of the Bible, isn't it? That you read their notes more than you read the text. Oh, I couldn't bear it. I just can't bear the thought of it. I remember Spurgeon, you know, a man went up to Spurgeon and said, oh, by the way, he said, saw one of your converts getting drunk this morning. And Spurgeon said, yes, he must be one of my converts because he's certainly not one of the Lord's. And that's what he was saying, because if he'd been one of the Lord's, he wouldn't have spent the morning getting drunk, you see. And I believe that we have got to check our own motivation in this, and we've got to ask, really, are we using the teaching aright? Are we using this teaching as an end in itself, in which case, please don't, or are we using it to whet our appetites, to get into the Word of God? My desire, you see, is that I might make the Word of God easier to comprehend and understand so that people can then go on and enjoy the Bible for for themselves, you see. But what this whole passage is saying is this, if something is going to do you good, you've got to take it in, and it's got to become part, structure of your life. With Jesus we've done that. We've taken Jesus on board, haven't we? And our whole life now is lived for him. We've got to take the word of God in in the same way. Do you know, by the way, the scripture that's over all of these tapes is Colossians 3.16, And that says exactly what I'm saying now. Let's just have a quick look at it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ, and here the Bible is called the word of Christ because Colossians is extolling the person of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell. The word dwell means to be at home. Let it be at home, so that when you take in the word, your thinking is so in line with the word of God, it feels totally at home. Right? And notice the word richly, abundantly. There's so much word in your head. You know, you're taking it in lavishly, and you're greedy for the word of God. Take it in. And then it says teaching and admonishing one another, singing songs that are based on the Bible. Nothing wrong with that. That's what we do in our choruses, you see, so that you share the Word of God in song to one another, teaching and admonishing one another. But it's not left with the teaching. It then goes through into action. And in verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And so the Word of God is so in you that whatever you do then is in line with the Word of God. All right, so the question is, well, how do we take in the Word of God to this sort of depth? I mean, how do you do it? Do you just read the Bible? No, I don't think just reading the Bible will do it. You've got to read the Bible. But I think there's got to be something deeper than that. And I believe there has to be a form of biblical meditation, Christian meditation. What do I mean by Christian meditation? Is there such a thing as Christian meditation? Oh, there sure is. But don't please be confused by this. The meditations you find in the world are entirely different to Christian meditation. Transcendental meditation is forbidden to the Christian. What do these worldly types of meditation do? The key with them is that you must empty your mind. Empty your mind, right? Many of them will say, now just empty your mind. Don't you dare do it, by the way. The mind has been given to guard the whole of your being. 
and the mind must constantly be alert. That's why hypnotism is totally wrong. You should not ever submit yourself to hypnotism. All right? But they tell you, empty your mind. Or transcendental meditation, knowing how difficult it is to empty your mind, especially if you're saying, I'm empty my mind, I'm empty my mind, I'm empty my mind. What they do is they blot out the mind. How? You repeat a phrase, a mantra. Sometimes the name of a Hindu god. You repeat it over and 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 over again till finally the mind's absolutely bombed out. And then suddenly, apparently, from in your depths comes this new super being and all the rest. Jesus warned against that. He said, when you pray, don't have it in the form of vain repetitions as the heathen do. Right? Don't do that. All of that's forbidden. We don't do it. I know some people who speak with tongues like that. They speak with tongues ever so fast, and they're trying to blot their mind out. Don't you dare do that. That is not Christian. Now, what is Christian meditation? Christian meditation occurs when you take the Word of God into your mind, it occupies your mind, and you keep it solidly moving in your mind. Right? That's Christian meditation. So you take a particular passage and you think about it and you think about it and you dwell on it. You take time to do it. In this day and age, by the way, it's a, a lot of schemes on how to read the whole Bible in one year. You know, I have very mixed feelings about that. Really, I do. Some people, it's like a race. And then at the end they say, oh, I've read the whole Bible in one year, you know. <laughs> Trouble is, if you try and read the whole Bible in one year, how much of it actually sticks in your mind? You know, I mean, it's a huge book. Well, you might try it once or twice in your lifetime. I prefer another technique in which if you think a passage is important to you, you read it solidly for 30 days, the same passage. What about that? Billy Graham, for example, reads one chapter of the book of Proverbs every day of his life. Now, he completes the whole book in one month and starts it again, and starts it again, over and over and over and over and over and over again. Wonderful. In one period of my life, the Lord told me to read certain chapters for 30 solid days. The same chapter. Have you ever taken the book of 1 John and read it every day for a month? By the end of that month, you're beginning to understand it. It's so funny. Yes? Or a little passage, a part of a chapter, right? And God's going to speak to you through that. Why don't you dwell on it? That's Christian meditation, taking the same passage again and again and again and again and again. The Greek word meditation means to practice, right? Now, if you're married to a pianist, or in a, a trial pianist anyway, or if your children play the piano, you know what that is, don't you? over and over and over and over until you finally say, please, will you stop playing that wretched tune, you know? How my wife puts up with my piano playing, I just don't know. I get uh, half an hour a day if I, you know, really put my mind to it. And the same pieces over and over and over. That's practice, but that's Christian meditation. Over and over and over and over and over again. And I'll tell you something, when you do it, the Word of God actually becomes part of you. It's wonderful. How I praise God that my depression did not go instantaneously when I was prayed for. Sounds almost heretical to say that, doesn't it? I've noticed some people, you pray for depression, it goes. Other people find the root cause of the depression, it goes. The vast majority find that neither of those works. It didn't work with me. I suffered terribly from black, black, black depression. And finally I thought, well, how do I get rid of this thing? And I realized it was through the word of God through the Word of God, that I would actually get rid of this depression. And do you know what I did? I've told this in, in my book. 
but I actually wrote out scriptures and put them on my wall, the wall of my room, right the way across, right the way across, right the way across. There were about 30 pieces of paper on uh, the wall. And I was feeling very bad. And do you know what I did? The Lord said, this is your medicine, take it three times a day before meals. And I did. Before I got up, I opened my eye and I looked and I started reciting the scriptures. It was the promises of God. I started reciting them, one after the other. I didn't feel any better, but I got up. But the word of God is alive and powerful, isn't it? It's got power in itself. And then after the lectures in the morning, I recited them again. If I felt really bad, I used to do after lunch as well. Then before I went to bed in the evening. Over and over and over and over again. I wrote them out on bits of card and I put them in my top pocket. And if I was waiting for a bus, I used to get them out, just flick them through. You see, over and over and over again. And do you know, through that effort, I found the word of God was gradually becoming part of me. Soon I didn't have to look at the cards. Soon I could take the sheets down because I knew the word of God up here. And once I'd achieved that particular level, I found the word of God began to minister to me. I am so glad God did it the hard way, as far as I'm concerned. Because you see, it gave me a key for every situation that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Wonderful it was. And I believe, you know, so often we Christians are so lazy, we want it simple, a bit of deliverance, a bit of therapy, or whatever it is. But listen, God actually wants us to mean business with him, and if we're really desperate to get sorted out, listen, don't look any further. Here's the answer. And it means a constant taking in of certain scriptures, time and time and time and time again. It was in those days I learned what Christian meditation was, and in those days that my real love for the Word of God uh, came forth. It did something within me. Do you remember in my book, um, Possessing the Land, I talk about the chap who felt sorry for butterflies. Do you remember that? And he took the end off every butterfly chrysalis to help the butterfly out. Oh, wasn't that kind of him? And these butterflies, instead of struggling to get out, they just slip out the end of the tube. Trouble is, they couldn't fly. And do you remember in the book, I make the point that the, the effort in getting out of the chrysalis was necessary to strengthen the wings. Beloved, I'll tell you this. If you really mean to get sorted out, it's going to take effort sometimes. And not on someone else's behalf, on your behalf. And what it means is you've got to take in the Word of God and mean business with the Word of God. That's what the Greek word meditation means. To practice over and over and over and over and over again until you know it. Wonderful. The Hebrew word meditation doesn't mean that. The Hebrew word for meditation actually means to move the lips or to mutter. That's what it means, right? Can't tell talk from mutter. But mutter, that's what it means. Mutter, 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 mutter. And you'll find that Jews even today, if they are meditating, they move their lips. Have you noticed that? They're moving their lips all the time. Why? What was the thought behind Hebrew meditation? It was this thought, and it's a very important thought indeed. The Hebrews believed that until you could explain something, you didn't really understand it. And isn't that true, by the way? Have you ever been in a position where you thought you understood something, and your little boy says, Debbie, could you just explain the nuclear reactor to me? <clears throat> and you think you understand it. And then you start explaining it, and you say, now, hold on, which is it? Is that, does that go in there? Oh, dear. And then finally you say, look, I'll have to look it up, son. Right? That was the thought behind the Hebrew's idea of meditation. You know it's true, don't you? How many of you thought that you understood the Trinity until the Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on the door? suddenly they knock on the door 
and they say, oh, yes, but what about this scripture? Oh, well, can you give me a scripture in the New Testament that says that the Trinity is so? Oh, now, what did Roger say? Uh, <laughs> now, was it two, two Thessalonians? No, no. A two Philippians? No, no, no such book. Uh, now, what was it? And you're stuck, you see. We've all done it, haven't we? I have to tell you that I just praised the Lord for Jehovah's Witnesses. It was when Jehovah's Witnesses once came to my door that I realized how shallow my knowledge was. And, it, and as I think I say on the Trinity tapes, it was only after my conversation with them that I determined I really would find out about the Trinity. You only know that you know something when you can explain it to someone else. Isn't that true? Someone in the fellowship uh, told me all oh, about three years ago that they were challenged by someone about eternal security. And suddenly they realized they hadn't really grasped it, you know. And they said they went scurrying then to research it again. But praise God for every time you're challenged like that. We know that this is true. Incidentally, every teacher knows this is true. I mean, things that you've known for years, they get challenged and suddenly it all goes out of your head. I remember sitting in examinations and my degree and stuff I'd done for eight years, you know, regularly. And all of a sudden, I couldn't remember which way round the earth spun. Couldn't remember whether it went from west to east or east to west. I just couldn't remember. And I'd taken it all for granted. And I said, oh, which way is it? Terrible. It was challenged. When I was a teacher, I had one of these students who came along. You know students. They're there to amuse the pupils. And the, um, <laughs> this student, I can say this, our students are away on holiday. But this student teacher came in, a very clever chap indeed. Had an excellent education, really knew his subject. And he wrote up on the board the word medieval, M-E-D-I-A-E-V-A-L. Quite correct. Medieval. And there it was, written up. Fine. Super. And he was about to teach, and it was a very clever class, and this chap, clever clogs on the front row, he thought, I'll play a bit with this. You know, they're like cats playing with a mouse, these pupils. And he said, excuse me, sir, you spelt medieval wrong. Oh, have I? Now, here's the chap, wants to please, you know, wants the lesson to go well. I'm sitting at the back of the lesson. Oh, um, oh, where? He said it's uh, E-L at the end, not A-L. Oh, he rubbed out the A, put E. Oh, thank you. So another chap thought, this is fine. He said, excuse me, sir, but um, too many E's, I feel. <laughs> he said, I don't think it should have an E in the middle. Oh, I, I think it should, said the chap. Oh, no, sir, another chap said. It's the I that's wrong. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh, of course, e, A-E is pronounced e, e, Yes, that's right. And he rubbed out the I. And then they kept throwing suggestions. And finally, one chap said, excuse me, sir, doesn't it begin with a T? <laughs> and by this time, he knew they were playing it. But he couldn't remember now how to spell it. It was terrible. And, and finally, he said, excuse me, Mr. Price. He said, how do you spell medieval? Now, he'd written it year after year after year, but it was when he's challenged that he really saw that he didn't know it enough. Can you see the point that I'm making? We've all had things like this. I was d doing a Bible study once at a certain university, you know, and I had to work, write Zerubbabel up on the board. And I was all confident. And as soon as I got up there, I thought, has he got a double R and one B? Or is it one R and double B? So I just put a Z and a full stop, and I thought, I must check it up afterwards. <laughs> You think you know these things until they're challenged, you see. Well, praise God if they're challenged. That's wonderful. Until you can explain something, you don't really know it. 
That's what the Hebrews believed, and I'm sure they're right. And you know so many people who think they know the Word of God. They think they know the Word of faith. It's when they're challenged you see whether they really know it. And we often find, all of us, that the Word hasn't gone deeply enough. Incidentally, that's the thought behind Romans chapter 10. Let's have a quickly turn to this. I've dealt with it on one of the specials somewhere, but I've forgotten where. Do you know there are people around this country who so know my tapes that if I say something like this, they can give me the tape number and the tape title and tell me which part of the talk it was in. Isn't that staggering? Absolutely amazing. But this is the thought. Uh, a salvation passage often quoted. Verse 8, 9, verse 8 and 9 of Romans 10. Passage you all know, but what saith it? It says, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And here's the verse. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now this little verse we all know, and yet most of us reverse it. If you're leading someone to Christ, we reverse it, don't we? We sit down with them and say, well, do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Right, good. Okay, now confess the Lord Jesus. And we get them to believe before they confess. How many of you know that's true? We do. You think of the way you've approached this verse. That doesn't say believe first and confess second. What it says is confess the Lord first and believe second. And what it's saying is make sure you understand the gospel message first and once you've understood it, believe after that. And that's typical Hebrew thinking in this. This is why, by the way, emotional uh, conversions are absolutely useless. You know, you have a, uh, an emotional service. Everyone sings, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. And everyone gets stirred up emotionally. Then you say, if you want to give your life to Christ, come forward. And these people with tears streaming down their cheeks walk forward. And some people then just pray the prayer and back they go to their seats. Now, that's emotional. Most of those will not go on with the Lord. And that's why at every evangelistic service, you must have people, counsellors, who take them behind. And what do they say to them? They go through. Do you understand you're a sinner? Do you understand you need a saviour? Do you understand that Jesus is the only one who died for your sins? You take them through it. Do you see? You're making them confess the Lord Jesus. Then they believe in the resurrection and so are saved. Do you see the principle that's given here? So it's two things in meditation. Practice, but really understanding what you're reading. That doesn't come easily at first, but certain passages it will. There are passages we can all understand, and we've got to dwell on those particular passages. I would say it's even deeper than that. Med true meditation is also praying that God will give you a revelation of the things that you are reading. Revelation is important. You'll notice Paul prayed it in Ephesians 1. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 16, 17, and the beginning of verse 18. He says, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And his prayer specifically is this, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation." in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. And sometimes it's wonderful to get on your knees with the open Bible, read a verse and pray to God. Pray, put the verse into a prayer unto God and ask God to give you a revelation of that thing. What is revelation, by the way? Well, 
uh, I can describe it like this. Uh, here's the brain of man. Here's his human spirit. The word of God is to saturate the brain, to get into the head, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then the Holy Spirit comes, he takes what's in the head, and he transfers it down into the human spirit. Now, once the knowledge of the word gets into your spirit, you don't just have knowledge, you've got a revelation. The eyes of your understanding are enlightened. You've got it now in the spirit. It's intuitive within you. It's wonderful to have revelation. But it only comes through Christian meditation and by a work of the Holy Spirit. Do you know, I mean, you'll find this, that I meet some people who are all the time saying, the devil's under my feet. I know the devil's under my feet. The devil's under my feet. The more you look into their lives, the more obvious it is that the devil isn't under their feet. And they're walking around, the devil's under my feet. The devil's under my feet. The devil, I tell the devil I do them wrong. Now they've got the knowledge up here, but there's no relaxation in them. But suddenly they get a revelation that the devil's under their feet. And never again, except in dire circumstances, do they ever have to go around talking about it. They have a relaxed mental attitude. They know the devil's under their feet. Right? And their attitude now comes, just let the devil get near me. Do you see? Revelation changes things. Sometimes you hear people and they're always talking about, we've got to be loved and, you know, oh, how we need to be loved and God wants to love us and they're constantly talking about, do we've got to be loved and come to a deeper revelation of love. It's absolutely true what they're saying, but very often you know the reason they're saying it is because they're not convinced themselves. And as they minister it, they're trying to convince you, but really they're trying to convince themselves. Once you get a revelation that he loves you, you just know he loves you. Do you see? A bit like a watchman knee, you know, who read Romans 6 about being dead with Christ, and suddenly he got the revelation, ran down the street. Do you remember? I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. <laughs> Wonderful. We've got to come to a revelationary knowledge of the Word of God. I've got such a revelationary knowledge. I know the Lord's got me in the palm of his hand. I know that that's the case. I know that whatever happens to me, God is greater than the thing that's happening to me. And I know Romans 8.28, absolutely in my spirit, it will work to the good, no matter how awful it is at the time. I may barrack and all this, but I know it underneath. That's the type of revelation we need. It comes through Christian meditation, eating the Word of God. How do you know that you're going right about this? I mean, how do you know that you're taking in the Word of God in the right way? I believe it's this. If you are taking in the Word of God correctly, you will know, know it emotionally. What I mean is that when you read a passage of Scripture, it won't just mean nothing to you, it will do something to you inside, right? You'll either get joy, you'll get peace, you'll be challenged in some way, uh, you know, it will give you zeal, it will, there'll be some reaction as you read it. You won't just read it and say, oh, well, that's my chapter, good. You know, another three chapters to go, and I've finished the whole Bible in one year, right? And then you can go onto a scheme to get through the whole Bible in a week if you want. You won't be like that. Rather, you'll say, oh, God really spoke to me this morning in Philippians, you know. I knew his peace as he spoke. I haven't quite got the fullness of the revelation, but I know he spoke to me this morning. I think it will affect your emotions, you see? And you'll find in every place where people are told to take in the Word of God deeply, it affects their emotions. I think um, we've just got time to go through one or two of these. Let's go to uh, Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15, 
And in this chapter, he's very depressed, had a lot of flack from the enemy. So much so that in verse 10, he regrets the day of his birth. Right? This is what Jeremiah went through. This is called the apostrophe of Jeremiah. But uh, there we are. Verse 10 says, Woe is me, my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. And then he describes how righteous he's been. Yet he's getting flack from every side. And he goes to God, and this is what he says, verse 15. Oh Lord, he says, Jeremiah 15, 15, Thou knowest, remember me and visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. And he's getting it from every side and he's upset. Now, the word of God comes to him. A promise comes to this man. He reads a particular part of a scroll. And look what he says. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. That means he took them in, he digested, he meditated on them. This isn't just finding the word of God and reading it. It's meditating on the thing. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Because God said he wouldn't do it. God promised him that the thing he asked for would come to pass. And he felt joy in his heart. Do you see that? It affected him. For I am called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. Uh, okay, Ezekiel 2. We see something slightly different. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And here is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel had a terrible message to preach. It was a fearful message. Look what it says, verse 9. And when I looked, behold, an hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll, a scroll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written within and without. And there was written lamentations and mourning and woe. And this was the word of the Lord to the land. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this scroll and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat. Belly is the emotions, the inner man. Don't just let your mouth eat. Get it emotionally, and fill thy bowels with this scroll that I give thee. Take it on deeply within you. Then I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Psalm 19 says, doesn't it, that the law of the Lord is perfect, and so on. And then it says it's sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. It's lovely. And the word of God, no matter whether it's good or bad, it's all sweetness in our mouth, because we love it so much. Then, after he'd taken it in, he says, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. And only when you've taken it in, and really understood it, and meditated upon it, can you explain it to someone else. And off he goes. Another example is in Revelation chapter 10, this mysterious of all chapters. Revelation 10. All right, verse 8 and verse 10. Here it is. Revelation 10, verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. He said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter. That's his emotions. For what it contained was so awful and dire that John would be upset as he, he read it. 
but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey, as the word of God always is. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. And you see, every time these people are told to eat the word, there is an emotional reaction to this thing. And I believe if we're taking the word of God with understanding, it will make us feel better. It will cause us to look at our commitment to God again, and so on. So eating in the Bible is always a symbol of receiving knowledge. By the way, don't we say, oh, by the way, take this and inwardly digest it. Don't we say that? It means to take in whatever is said and inwardly digest it. And all good politicians are able to read memos and take them in and inwardly digest them and do it very rapidly. Beloved, we've got to start taking the Word of God seriously. And perhaps for some of us it means taking it in a new way. This mad rush to get through the Bible from beginning to end in a year. I'd rather have understanding of portions of the Word of God this year and understanding of other portions next year so that eventually I might read the whole Bible from beginning to end with understanding. That is the day that I'm working towards. And by the way, in this series, of course, that's what we're working towards. That's why we've done so much work in these basics, so that the day will come that we can speak about the Word of God from beginning to end with total understanding. All right, just to end tonight's talk, I'm going to just read three more scriptures with the word meditate in. All right, so let's turn to these and see the promises associated with them. First of all, Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Here it is. They're about to go into the land. What does Joshua say? Well, actually, verse 7. He says to them, this, Joshua 1, 7, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand nor to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Do you see it? In other words, you've got to make sure that you are speaking the word of God all the time. Don't let it go from your mouth. Your mouth must be filled constantly with my word. But thou shalt meditate therein, day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. And that promise still holds today for those of us who are eating the word of truth. Praise God. By the way, the Lord said this to me, any fellowship that upholds the word of God will be successful. It's as easy as that. Because his word will not return unto him void. See the point. All right, Psalm 1, Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3. Every teenager needs to know this little passage of Scripture, together with Proverbs chapter 1. Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Do you see, there's emotion in that. The Word of God isn't just dead, oh, I suppose I better read a chapter. There's a delight when you approach the Word of God. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Why? Because man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds 
Praise God. Wonderful. And then lastly, a New Testament scripture, 1 Timothy 4. When I was in my early 20s, this was a scripture that the Lord gave to me time and time again. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11. This is what it says. 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in manner of life, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attendance to reading. Remember the people couldn't read in those days. They didn't have their own Bibles. The only time they read the Bible was when it was read publicly in, in uh, church. And every day they had the reading of the Word of God. You now must take this for you individually. Give attendance to the reading. No longer my duty to do it. You can read for yourself. To exhortation, to exhort people. That's what I've done tonight, to go deeper. To doctrine. Don't ignore the doctrine, he says. That's important. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Think of what you've been called to. Give thyself wholly to them, that the, thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The word save also means deliver. Right? You will deliver those who hear you. Praise God for the power that's in the Word of God. As we meditate thereon, as we take it in, do you know it is life-transforming? Oh, the wonderful things that have been achieved in, in the lives of individuals in this place because of the Word of God. Many people here can testify of areas of weakness, and they really had problems with them, but they got to God. They got the Word of God. They understood what God was saying, and as they understood it, so they found that the area was removed from their lives. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Beloved, it's no good uh, being shallow over the Word of God. We've got to be fully committed, and that means on a daily basis, take it in and meditate upon it. Let's just pray, shall we? Let's ask God to really give us a revelation of these things. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you that through your word we've been set free from the corruption that's in the world. And Father, we see the monotony, the desperation of those around us. But your word gives us peace and joy in the innermost heart. I thank you for your word. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us even through your word. Father, I thank you even that you have exalted your word even above your name. And Father, I would ask even tonight that the people who hear this, Father, should take it seriously. And will you teach them and teach me how to meditate on your word? Forgive us, Father, that in these days of mass production, in these days of, of uh, trying to reach certain limits, Father, to try and get production up and so on, that we've so often treated your word in the same way. And we've been interested in reading as much as we can. And yet we admit that it's become shallower and shallower as we've rushed through. Father, give us, please, the determination to meditate on the whole book of Romans. Give us that determination, Lord. 
Father, give us the determination that if we do nothing else for three or four months, we will go through Romans from beginning to end, time and time and time again, until we understand it. Reveal to us major passages of the portion uh, and portions of the, of the Scriptures, Lord. Father, that these might live within us and become real in all of our lives. Father, our prayer tonight is thy word might become flesh in us. Father, after Jesus had spoken on his flesh and his blood, it says that many deserted him and went away. And even John 6, 66, it says that many of his disciples went and they left him. And at the end of John 6, he's left with a very small group who are staying with him because they have nowhere else to go. Father, I would ask, Lord, that we might be so true to your word that even though it means, Father, that people in this world will despise us and they won't like us and they'll think all manner of evil about us and we might even be very unpopular, I just pray, Father, that we should be true to your word. And I thank you for Jesus' example, who didn't hold back. He didn't teach that which would cause popularity. He taught that which was true and right. Father, I do ask that we might be those who are faithful to your word, that we might preach it from beginning to end. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.